For the past few weeks, we've been uh, talking about on Sunday mornings and also with these uh, devotionals that I've been sending out by email, talking about this inner struggle within most of us that goes on, this inner struggle between a sense of wonder, awe, and gratitude and a sense of uh, cynicism. And I don't necessarily mean skepticism. I think when we talk about following Jesus and making Christianity our, our predominant worldview, there is room in that worldview for healthy skepticism. And there's room in that worldview for even sarcasm, thank goodness, because I would be lost without uh, sarcasm. I'm, I'm very sarcastic at times. But when it comes to cynicism, which is just this wholesale conversion to uh, pessimism, and believing that uh, you, know, you should just expect the worst from people most of the time, and believing that people don't change, and believing that you, know, um, you don't change, and, and you are who you are, and, and that leads you to believe, I think, inevitably, that we're basically just matter and energy ha that happen to evolve based on one overriding principle, that principle being um, the survival of the fittest. And so we are convinced in that worldview, the cynical worldview, that I'm in it for me, you're in it for you. Let's see what happens. And we make no bones about the fact that, that I care most about myself and you should care most about yourself, and that's that. There's a little bit of a conflict there between that way of looking at the world and the gospel worldview that we're trying to um, communicate here at the story. So the story has a certain mission, and if you're new here, you may not know this, and I think it kind of sets the story apart from some other churches that you may have been a part of in the past. Our mission is specifically to non-religious people. We want to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. Now, what that means is we hope you will make Jesus the center of your life and you'll make his worldview your worldview. And there's no room in that for cynicism, really. And he can disavow you of your cynicism if you trust him. Um, what it doesn't mean is that we want to make you more religious. In fact, our hope is never to make non-religious people more religious. We want to give you the gospel. And whereas religion gets cloudy and confusing and it's all about rules and morality. Like, the gospel has none of that. The gospel is pure, and it's clear, and it is not up to you. It's so much different than religion is. And so um, I think sometimes it's religion itself that can make us cynical. I've, just been, I've been searching my own heart to figure out when I get to that place in life, and often it's this time of year because the traffic's a little worse and people are you know, kind of going crazy for uh, buying stuff and doing stuff and the schedule's out of whack and, and I, it's easier to get cynical at Christmas, ironically. What is it that works within us that causes us to be so cynical? I came across this video that kind of summed up a lot of my experience whenever I find myself in that cynical tailspin of a feeling or an attitude. And maybe you'll relate to this as well. I think 95% of us probably struggle with cynicism on some level in some form or fashion. There's that 5% that is always smiling. If you were a dog, you'd be a poodle. Like, like everybody rolls their eyes when you're not around. Like we don't really buy it, but like you're fine. It's cool. But the rest of us struggle with cynicism. And the question I've been wondering is, is why? And, and uh, just check out this video about the grand opening of a luxury shoe store in Los Angeles. The experiment making headlines by the chain Payless Shoes. They held a grand opening of a luxury store with a different name but the same shoes and charged hundreds more for those same shoes. Customers paid. Here's ABC's Kana Whitworth. Behold. 
Palessi. We built a fake luxury store in Los Angeles and filled it with Payless shoes. The guests at our grand opening party had no idea. Guests invited to check out what looked like a luxury shoe shop. They're elegant, sophisticated. I just think it's so classy. And I could tell it was made with high quality material. A $35 shoe going for $645, an 1800% markup. Store owners sat on their heels as fashion influencers emptied their wallets. I would pay 400, 500, yeah. People are gonna be like, <gasps> Where'd you get those? Those are amazing. Then they're let in on the prank. These are actually from Payless. You've got to be kidding me. Shut up. Are you serious? But those shoppers were refunded their money and they got to keep the shoes. David Payless calling it a provocative social experiment designed to challenge today's image conscious culture. Either way, it was an effective PR stunt. Yeah. A challenging social experiment designed to challenge our, what'd she say, uh, consumeristic, egocentric, image-driven culture. Is that really why Payless did that? Or were they trying to sell more Payless shoes? You decide. Uh, so <laughs> there's so much in this video to be cynical about, like just pick your poison, right? So you could be cynical about the fact that there's such a thing as a fashion influencer on social media. That's a job now. I don't know how you get that job. Um, you clearly don't need to know what you're talking about to be that because they <laughs> thought that Payless was Palessi. And so <laughs> it's just the best. And, you know, their, 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 their hypocrisy about, you know, these shoes, people will be saying, where did you get them? They're amazing. And, you know, they're like patent leather leopard print sneakers. Like <laughs> you would never, I don't nothing about fashion and I would never say they're amazing, right? So you don't really, there's nothing real about it. There's nothing real about any of it. And I think if I were to diagnose the cause of a lot of our cynicism, I think it's that ambiguous place that defines this generation, perhaps more than any other, as a, a, a not knowing, not discerning reality from, from falsity. We don't, we don't know the difference between what's real and what's not because that's just the age we live in. We live in the age of Photoshop. You don't know how pretty that girl is in real life. You know, you know, she could be a disaster in real life. Photoshop's a powerful thing. You don't know. In the age of online dating and catfishing, you don't know who you're going to meet tonight. Like, you, you don't know what's real. Like, we live in the age of spin and media headlines. They can spin any story the way that they want, depending on what their angle is as a media outlet. They can take any scientific study and spin it the way that they want. I've seen the same study represented two different ways a million times. Coffee's good for you. Coffee will kill you. Uh, <laughs> women need more sleep than men. Men need more sleep than women. Like, it's always, it's always twisted to the extent that we just walk around confused and not really knowing if anything's real, and if you're too deep in it, you'll start to think nothing's real at all. And what happens in that ambiguity is that we start reaching for the shiniest things around us to hold on to. And that fleshes itself out a lot of times in the what we buy. 
Because we think that uh, this lost feeling that we have, this feeling of uh, ambiguous reality, it, it can be resolved by grabbing the shiniest, newest, fastest, most expensive thing. And it will deliver us from that feeling that we have. It will set us free, even for a moment, from that feeling of uh, being mundane and ordinary and uh, lost. And so we keep falling for it, especially at Christmas. I see this a lot at Christmas, and I've experienced it my whole life. As a kid first, and now I see it as a parent. And Christmas is a tricky thing. I don't know how many of you are going to own up up to this, but I I experienced this as, as a kid, like 10, 11, 12 years old. I remember distinctly the feeling of anticipation for weeks, it built, and you wondered what Santa was going to bring, and you wondered why Santa was storing his presents in your parents' closet, and you wondered how awesome it was going to be. And then finally, Christmas morning, and that's when the anticipation hit its apex, just climax Christmas morning, and then the doors open, you go see what all Santa's brought you, and it's like the best 45 minutes of your year. Christmas morning, the most exciting time of the year. Shiny, new, exciting. And then there's Christmas afternoon. Something happens between Christmas morning and Christmas afternoon. There is almost inevitably the feeling of disillusionment that sets in. It's a subtle thing, but sadness comes over the house. Christmas afternoon, because it didn't live up to the hype. All that money, all that time, all that hope you put into Christmas morning, by Christmas afternoon, the kids are done playing with all those toys. Now what? Now we're, we're just as lost as we were. Now we, we're back to where we began, and it's only been a couple hours. Let's go to the movies, kids. Like, let's, <laughs> let's keep forgetting. You know, like, let's keep avoiding the reality here. But it's that Subtle disillusionment that I want you to reflect on today. I think that is the food of cynicism. That's what cynicism feeds on. That little sense of deception that causes you over time to believe maybe nothing's really real at all because you've been grasping at the stuff they told you was real and it didn't do anything. It didn't change anything. Nothing's different. So we buy stuff to feel different. We buy stuff for other people so they'll feel different. And then we get the stuff and nobody's different. It's all the same. That's the making of a cynic, I think, in 2018. Now, that ambiguous meaninglessness uh, where you don't know right from wrong or up from down or truth from false, true from false, like it's not new. It's just worse now is what I'm saying. It's been going on forever. If you're not a Christian, you may not know that the, the, the Bible, the Christian worldview, we believe that there is an enemy and always has been an enemy that's a spiritual enemy, and he is uh, the counterbalance to, to God, right? His name is Satan or the devil or the evil one or whatever you're comfortable with. And, and his strategy has always been the same ever since the beginning. His strategy has been to confuse you and demoralize you and uh, just trick you into thinking that uh, you know, the stuff that you've put your hope in is not really real at all. And that's what he's been up to since um, forever. And the people who wrote the New Testament, the men who put pen to paper in the first century, 
put pen to paper because the devil was already at work in the first century about Jesus. After his death and resurrection, rumors and lies and, and uh, misinformation was already being spread. They were saying that Jesus' mother Mary wasn't really a virgin, that she had uh, been with a Roman soldier named Pantera, and that Jesus wasn't really resurrected. Yes, Pantera. Jesus wasn't really, re- this is a true story. I'm not making this up. Like These were documented rumors about Mary. There was a, there was a, a rumor that Jesus, uh, you know, that he wasn't really resurrected, that somebody had uh, stolen his body or whatever, like all these rumors. And that's why the men who wrote the New Testament wrote the New Testament, because Listen, it wasn't a common thing for people to write books in the first century. People didn't sit around writing books very often, especially people that had very little to speak of, like Jesus' disciples. And so it would have taken something dramatic for them to write these books down, this information down. And the reason that they did was because there was all this misinformation. The enemy was at work confusing people, bringing clouds of confusion and ambiguity. And the disciples wrote the New Testament for the purpose of bringing clarity, the clarity of the gospel. Because listen, as complicated as we make it sometimes, the gospel is very clear. The gospel is a very simple message. We overcomplicate it with religion, but the gospel is very simple. And so that's why the First Christians wrote the New Testament. Many of them, some of them were actual disciples of Jesus. And when you read their writings, when you really dig in and learn where these words came from, the men that wrote them, who they were, it's fascinating. If you're a student of history at all, regardless of how much credence you get lend the Bible, there is too much evidence that the men who wrote these books actually knew Jesus of Nazareth firsthand or Secondhand. So most of, of the guys, the guys that wrote the Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark was Peter's, trans, or Peter's transcriber. He was his, uh, his writer because Peter was, uh, was illiterate. And so Peter wrote Mark. Luke was a secondhand contact, we think. And then John was obviously Jesus' best friend. And so uh, three of the four Gospels, guys that actually knew Jesus in the flesh, like they talked with him and they ate with him and they made jokes with him and they followed him around and uh, they watched him get arrested and they claimed to see him after he was dead, but they saw him alive. And you know, um, one of the common critiques of Christianity that you'll see on Reddit or you'll hear um, among cynical crowds is that the, the, the men who wrote the Bible, um, yeah, they died for what they believed in, but people die for false beliefs all the time. You can point to any crazy religious cult where there was suicide involved or something and people die for stuff that, that, that's not true all the time, right, obviously. And so that doesn't prove anything. But as has been counter-argued many times successfully, I think men and women, people don't die for something that they believe is not true. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? Is it just me here? People who die for what they believe in believe 100% that it's true. Okay? And so these men are documented to have known Jesus by non-biblical sources, the reason we know, we are 90% sure Matthew wrote Matthew isn't because Matthew said in Matthew, I'm Matthew, I'm writing Matthew. He doesn't. But people in the late first century and early second century were writing letters back and forth saying, yeah, Matthew, the tax collector, wrote that first gospel. And Matthew was their favorite gospel. And um, we know this because they quoted Matthew in their letters back and forth more than any other gospel. And this isn't stuff that's in the Bible, this is other extra-biblical correspondence among Christian leaders. Um, And so this guy, Matthew, uh, he was a publican. 
not a Republican. He was a publican, which was an upper-level tax collector. And so we often say that, I've heard this argument made against the veracity of the Bible as well, that Jesus' followers were just a bunch of illiterates. How could a bunch of illiterates actually have written this stuff? It must have been written by somebody else with some other agenda. You've heard this argument if, you're, if you've walked in the same circles I have. In my days of unbelief, that's what I banked on, that kind of stuff. Well, if Matthew was a publican, it meant he had to be literate. We know this historically. These men were not only supposed to be literate, they're supposed to be literate in many languages because they had to collect the taxes from the Hebrew people who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and they had to give and report the taxes back to the Roman government. They spoke Greek, so they had to write and read and speak in multiple languages. Jesus was very strategic when he put his team together. He'd be killer in a fantasy draft. And, <laughs> and so he pieced together this group of guys who all had different gifts. Matthew was very educated and literate. And he wrote this gospel with the objective in mind. His target audience was a Jewish audience. Maybe that's why it was the favorite gospel, and maybe because most of the first Christians were Jews. Matthew wanted to communicate something very clear to the first Christians, especially the Jewish Christians, that Jesus, actually his target target audience was, Christian, was Jewish people who weren't sure about Jesus yet. So Matthew was the story Houston of the first century. Like he wanted to talk to non-religious like, people in terms of Jesus, right? And so they, they had more questions than answers. Matthew wants to say to them, and he does with, with his gospel, Jesus was more than just a man. Jesus was more than just a rabbi. He was more than just a great teacher, more than a healer. He was more than just the Jewish Messiah that we've been waiting for as good Jews for centuries because he didn't come as a warrior king like David, like we thought he would just kicking behinds in Jerusalem and, until the Rome, Romans left and taking over. That's not what he did. Matthew wants to communicate that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. God in the flesh. And this was an invasion. Christmas was an invasion. Not sweet or sentimental like we've made it. Christmas was an intervention from on high. And God came and walked among us. That's the message that Matthew wants to send, a very clear message in uh, an ambiguous time. Now, uh, any of you fans of biographies, you read biographies, any of you? Um, whenever you read a biography, it's always important to know the author's angle, right? Because you can't tell every detail of a person's life. It would be a really boring book. He went to the bathroom, and then he read the paper. And then, you know, it's like, you don't want to know every detail. And so every biographer picks and chooses. And so the question is asked when you're a literary critic, like, what choices is this biographer making and why? And Matthew makes choices. Matthew makes choices the other gospel writers don't make. And the question is why? What's he trying to communicate? And it begins as early as the first chapter of Matthew. In this uh, text that you've got in your study guides, you're going to need it because you're not going to be able to, if you're more than four rows back, you're not going to be able to see it on the screen. It's too many words, but that's by design. You have a study guide, you can look it up. And Matthew chapter 1, um, verse 1. Uh, th these are the first uh, 16 or so verses of Matthew. And the way Matthew opens his biography of Jesus is by offering a family tree. None of the others open their Gospels this way. Luke offers a similar family tree, but it's a little later in his telling. But Matthew offers this in a way that has raised eyebrows for 2,000 years. The choices he makes in this genealogy of the most important person who's ever walked the earth, it's really eye-popping. 
So I wanted to go over this with you, and I want you to ask yourself, why does Matthew make the choices that he makes? Um, it was customary when stating a Jewish person's uh, family tree to skip generations that just didn't matter as much historically. So there are some generations that are skipped. You'll notice there are some names that are more famous that aren't mentioned, and some names that are less famous that are. And the question's why. So here we go. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. You can follow along in your Bible or in the study guide or on the screen. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, so we're going all the way back to Abraham, Genesis 12. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. So right there is a choice. First time he's used and his brothers. Judah and his brothers. Why does he say Judah and his brothers? Well, it's because Judah and his brothers were not the nicest dudes on planet Earth. Judah and his brothers were the ones who stripped their younger brother, Joseph, of, their, of his coat of many colors. If any of you are Broadway fans, the amazing Technicolor dream coat, and they stripped him and they threw him into the pit and then they sold him as a slave, their own brother. Quality class act, this Judah. And it doesn't end there. Judah, that happened in chapter 37 of Genesis. In chapter 38 of Genesis, Judah doesn't repent and suddenly become a great man of God. In chapter 38 of Genesis, Judah does something perhaps even worse. And uh, this is the first, by the way, the first woman that is introduced into the family tree of Jesus. According to Matthew, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay? So Tamar, the first woman mentioned. Um, so Matthew skips all the women until this one. Why? He doesn't mention Sarah, who's the matriarch of the Jewish faith. He probably should have. He left out the most important woman, Sarah. He doesn't mention, like, Rebecca and some other well-known characters. He mentions Tamar. Well, in Genesis 38, if you've never heard the story, it will blow your mind. And this is probably one of those stories you get to when you're trying to read through the Bible. You get 38 chapters in, feeling really good about yourself, and then you're like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Because... Judah and Tamar, crazy story. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Y'all buckle in. All right, so Tamar was a young woman married to Judah's oldest son. And soon after they get married, before they can conceive a child, the son dies. Mysteriously, untimely death. And so as was the custom, because God believed in taking care of widows, he, uh, God had given the people the rule that a uh, social security system for women was that they would be passed down to the next of kin to be their wife. I know that sounds gross, women marrying your husband's brother, but that's the way it was then to make sure that women were taken care of for the long term because Tamar otherwise would have been looking at a lifetime of poverty, destitute, begging, prostituting on the street. So she is given to Judah's second son. He has three, by the way. And the second son, soon after the wedding, dies too. Untimely, unexpected death. So Judah's starting to think there's something wrong with this woman. <laughs> so uh, uh, the other two sons are gone. He's only got one left. And so he tells Tamar, go back and stay with your father until my youngest son is of age. I guess he's prepubescent. He's not ready to be a husband. And so she, he sends Tamar back and says, I'll contact you when the time has come. Years go by and Tamar has no idea what's going on. She thinks this youngest son must be a late bloomer. Like maybe some boys go into puberty at 24. Like who knows? Like what's going on here? Uh, she hears word one day that... Uh, Judah has been spotted in her town and he's got the youngest son with him and the youngest son's got a full beard and stuff. Like he's of age. And Judah never told Tamar. Clearly, Judah never intended to tell Tamar and he was gonna leave her hanging out to dry, defenseless, 
She was on the cusp of living a life of a beggar and a prostitute the rest of her life. That was a reality for widows like Tamar. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She puts on a disguise. She dresses up in the garb of a prostitute. She covers her face except for her eyes. She makes herself look as good as she can. She goes out and sits on the corner where Judah was known to be passing by. Judah takes notice of her. His wife has died recently. He's feeling uh, lonely, and uh, he notices this uh, apparently attractive prostitute he doesn't recognize on the street, and he propositions her, and we've got children present, so you can do the math. They go uh, to a private room, and... And he, he forgot his wallet. It's a likely story. But he's like, I don't have my wallet. And, uh, and, and, she's, and she's like, no freebies. I need, I need something. So uh, she, she, she asks for collateral. And he gives her all that he has, which was his signet ring. That was his family's signet ring. And his staff, which were like his passport and uh, social security card. Like that was what he was handing over to this prostitute that he'd never met before. Men sometimes don't think with our brains. So he is not thinking clearly, obviously. And they do what they do. And um, long story short, she gets pregnant. A few months pass. Word gets back to Tamar that this young girl... Uh, I'm sorry, word get back to Judah, that this young girl, Tamar, who he's still technically legally responsible for, has, uh, how does the Bible put it? I can't say how the Bible puts it. The Bible's R-rated sometimes. Has played around, and uh, now she's pregnant. And Judah's words are, how could she? He says, have her dragged out into the the city square, and she will be stoned to death for her sins. But when they drag her out to be stoned to death, what is she holding in her hands but Judah's passport (laughs) and social security card? And Judah then is convicted. And it's then that he repents. And he takes Tamar into his own home where he cares for her for decades until his death. And God blesses Tamar who took matters into her own hands and did some unseemly things that would get you kicked out of most churches in 2018 in America and blesses her not only with one baby but with two. He gives her a double blessing to give her extra security um, because children, sons especially, were security for women in those times. There were difficult times for women. And so Tamar is the first woman mentioned in Jesus' family tree, according to Matthew. Why? What choice is Matthew making here? Let's keep going. Perez, that was one of the twins. Perez, the father of Hezron, uh, on and on and on until you get to Nashon, the father of Salmon, as we say in the south, or Salmon, anywhere else. And Salmon, uh, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There's the second woman mentioned. And so um, Salmon married Rahab and had Boaz. Rahab was a prostitute, and she wasn't even pretending like uh, Tamar was. She was a legit, actual prostitute. I don't know what the life of a prostitute was like in 1000 BC. I can't imagine that it was delightful. I can imagine it must have been a struggle. That was Rahab's life for Lord knows how long until she helped the Israelite spies in Jericho. She was also a foreigner, by the way. And God's plan was for the Israelites to conquer Jericho. The spies are in the walls of Jericho. She hides them. She lies for them. She harbors them. And uh, she is rewarded by being protected during the siege of Jericho. And then she's married into the Israelite community. And she is given a child, Boaz. Boaz, a key player in the Old Testament. Uh, Boaz, I don't know what happens when uh, a young person is raised by a mother who's been through the struggle but she's risen above it. 
there's some kind of deeper character that a person has when they're raised by a mother who's lived the struggle and overcome. Boaz has deeper character than most men have. He's not looking for the hottest, hottest or sexiest like young thing out there to marry. He's looking for character, and he finds Ruth, a Moabite, a widow who herself is facing a life destitute in poverty, possibly in prostitution. She's a widow on her own. She's a Moabite, which means, according to Deuteronomy, she's never to be welcomed into the family of God. Moabites were personas non grata. They were not allowed. Unlike other, other foreigners, the Moabites were a special case. They just were awful people, apparently, but not this one. Her faith was reckoned to her as righteousness, and God welcomed her because she trusted him. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and the line goes on. Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I've talked about that recently. I'm not going to get into that one, but just know that the great King David, the man after God's own heart, the man who wrote more than half of the biggest book in the Bible, the Psalms, was in fact an adulterer, possibly a rapist, and definitely a killer. Why include David and Bathsheba, the woman who had been Uriah's wife. Another interesting choice of words by Matthew in Jesus's celebrated family tree. And it goes all the way down to Mary, mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Why did Matthew make these choices? Hmm. I used to think that it was uh, just a matter of wanting to show how God can clean up our messes. And I think that's still the case. This time, though, as I studied for this message, I came across some Jewish Christian resources, some scholars in the world of Jewish Christianity that um, indicated um, how important it would have been for Jesus as the true Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent by God, God in the flesh, to be part of a family tree that was different and set apart sanctified and made holy. And Matthew, knowing the Jewish psyche, knows that in order for Jesus to be legitimate, his lineage must be absolved of the shame that it naturally carries because of these unseemly characters and all the awful things that have defined them historically. And so the only thing that can posthumously redeem the irredeemable is God himself intervening, entering into the story to make right that which has been so terribly wrong. So Jesus enters in to redeem those who have been in their sin. God himself entering the story is the way that these people who've lived and gone wrong in their lives are sanctified. Sanctified is a key word. We don't talk enough about it, but you got to know what it means if you're going to take Jesus seriously because this is his will for you. In a word, his will for you is sanctification. Not happiness and not corporate ladder, not career, not net worth. Sanctification. Sanctification is a big word that simply means in the process of being made like Christ. All of those words matter crucially to the definition, and I broke it down in this way. So it is a process. Sanctification does not happen all at once. Some of you had an experience with Jesus one time long ago, and you thought everything was going to change, and then the next morning you felt the same urges you felt the day before, and not everything changed. I guess it didn't take, or it wasn't real. Maybe I should just move on. No, it is a process. 
you're going to, Jesus is going to put you on your feet. And you're going to fall down again. And will you trust him enough to get back up? It's a process that happens over time. In many ways, it's two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes we take the one step back, we never get back up again. It's a process of being made. This is intentionally passive voice. And what that means is you're not the one who makes yourself holy. You're not the one who makes yourself like Christ. It's not a matter of going to Barnes & Noble and getting the right book and figuring it out for yourself. If you're looking for the right book, I know the right one. But if you don't, oh, I'm just kidding. So if, <laughs> that's an inside joke. But if, <laughs> it's not about that. It's not about the right self-help book, technique, philosophy. It's not about you making your right choices and getting your life together. And it's not about any of that. It's about God's intervention first. And only God can sanctify. Only God can redeem the irredeemable. Only God can take the worst of your past and restore it. Only God does that. You don't have that power, but God does. In fact, this is his only objective with you. This is what he wants for you, is to, is to sanctify you. It is God who sanctifies, and the purpose of sanctification is to make us like Christ. So we love with his heart and think with his mind and forgive as he forgives, and uh, our lives start to look like Christ. And that happens over time as we trust God with more of ourselves. This is what Jesus wants. He said it himself in John 17, 17, where he's praying to the Father in this sweet moment. And Jesus prays that God, the Father, would sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And if you don't really know the Gospel of John, you might think that Jesus is talking about the Bible. And, and if you have big problems with the Bible, then that's a deal breaker for you because I can't believe, you know, if you've had trouble with the Bible, I can't believe that Bible, the, that book is true because men and their agendas wrote it and all that stuff. Listen, if that's a stumbling block for you, then you're, you're missing it a little bit. The Bible is a critical part of your journey with Christ. And I believe that if you learn to trust Jesus, he'll help you learn to trust the Bible in some really amazing ways. But listen, the first step is not to worship the book. The first step is, is not to find your holiness by the letter of the book. Because in the Gospel of John, the word isn't the book. The book didn't exist at that time. It was still being written, right? And so the, the, the word of God is Jesus. Literally, the word was logos. And it goes all the way back to the first chapter of John where it says, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was God and the logos was with God, and the Logos became flesh. Logos is a Greek word in philosophy that meant the ground of our being, the foundation on which we stand, the truth of life. And John says it is Christ. To sanctify, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit is to be made like Christ um, and, and to find our meaning in him. A few uh, months ago, I, I, uh, we aired an episode of the Maybe God podcast uh, in the first season of Maybe God, and it was about marriage, and um, I interviewed a couple that goes uh, to the story, and, and uh, I did not know that how dramatic a story they were going to tell, but um, there's a, a couple named Ricardo and, and Emily, and some of you all know Ricardo and Emily, and, and I didn't know that just months or weeks before I met Ricardo the first time, he had attempted to take his own life. And he was so deep in his depression because for years they'd been living a lie. 
For years, the two of them together in their friends group, they had been chasing the shiniest things they could find around them. They had been um, chasing the biggest parties, chasing the best drugs, chasing alcohol. And then when all that started to not satisfy them, they started chasing bigger homes and nicer cars and better clothes and all this stuff. They just chased all that stuff that all of us are tempted to chase whenever we're trying to fill a void in our hearts. And it wasn't working. And they were just racked with addiction and infidelity and just brokenness to the point that he sat in his garage with his car on, all the doors and windows closed, ready to die. And Ricardo, who worships here on Sundays, said it was then that God spoke to him very clearly and said, you're not finished. He said it was the first time he'd ever heard the voice of God and he turned off his car and he went to his wife, Emily, said, we need to do something different. Emily was an agnostic or an atheist at the time, didn't believe much of anything and, she kind of, he brought her kicking and screaming, <laughs> screaming into the story for the first time when we were still over at the gym. I remember this day when we saw them for the first time because Emily, by the end of the service, was just a mess. She was sobbing. Something about the music and the message had just spoken to her, and she said, I realized that day that we're just not alone here. We're not alone. And the sanctification process began. God began working in them. And I asked uh, them how specifically they changed. And Emily said, Ricardo is just becoming a new man all the time. She said, I used to have to do everything around the house. And Ricardo is from Colombia and Emily is, is uh, here from Texas. And, and uh, Ricardo said, uh, yeah, I used to tell her that I didn't even know how to work a washing machine because uh, I'm from the third world and we don't have those machines down there. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and she said, now he... He's scheduling a lot less meetings at night because he's not avoiding me anymore. We're embracing each other more. He's serving me more. And he said, it just, what he said was in the interview was all that just came naturally because of something God was doing in me. It just started to be my nature to serve her. I'm not saying that they've got it all figured out and they would be the first ones to tell you that their sanctification process is not complete. There have been hang-ups and setbacks. There always are. But when you belong to Christ and you experience a setback and life knocks you down and you disappoint yourself and you go back to doing things the way you used to do them, you face a crossroads to walk back toward the life you used to have to get back up and follow Jesus again. Christmas is not sweet That baby was not meek and mild. Is any baby meek and mild? What have we done to Christmas? The worst thing we've done to this season is made it sentimental. It is not sentimental or sweet or sappy. It's an invasion. It's an intervention for our recovery. And anyone who's ever been in any serious recovery group knows that the Change, the transformation begins not with you and your decisions, but with your higher power, your God. And Christmas is the belief that our God loves us enough to intervene and to want something better for us. And it's not what's under the tree. The, what he wants for you is so much better. You don't need the stuff you've been told you need. You don't need 
a new wardrobe, a new workout, a new wife. You don't need a new career. You don't need a new car. You don't need any of that stuff. I'm not guilting you about buying stuff. Buy all the presents you want, but don't pin your hopes on them. You don't need that stuff. All you need is Jesus. I know what a cliche that sounds like. I I just want you to hear me say, it's not about joining a church. I don't need you to join the Story Houston today or to pledge a bunch of money for 2019 or, or to whatever. Like, it's not about any of that stuff. That's religion. It's about believing what Matthew believed. After he saw and walked with and lived with Jesus, that Jesus was the only thing in this world that's, real and true through and through. If you live in that place of moral ambiguity where you don't know what's right and wrong sometimes and you feel like everybody's spinning something and the enemy's working on you to deceive you and confuse you, I want you to hear me, especially you stubborn men in the room who are like me, I want you to hear me Jesus is the logos of God. He's the ground on which you stand. He is the foundation you can trust. You can stand on him and trust him and surrender to him. And then watch him change your life, not all at once, but over time. And watch him change the lives of those around you. Life will begin to make sense. As he begins to put your priorities in place, he may not make you rich or happy, successful in the eyes of this world. He'll make you holy, sanctify you, and put you in your proper place as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your love and forgiveness. Help us today to distinguish your invitation to gospel from the rote rigid religion that we've sought in the past. God, help us to seek the truth in you and you alone for all else will surely disappoint. This Christmas, Lord, help us to avoid sentimentalizing what you've done. Truly, you came to claim us and set us free from our past to give us a new present and to reshape our future in your name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.